God is on mission to redeem a people from all peoples who will reflect His glory in all spheres of life. The Bible describes and confirms this mission from beginning to end. Woven into the creation of Adam and Eve, the mission extended to all nations through God's promise to Abraham. Jesus took up this same mission and taught it to His disciples. Today, those who follow Christ take on His mission. We were designed to reflect His glory in every sphere of life, not only in this present life, but in the life which is to come throughout the heavens and the earth. Until then, will you give your life to God? Will you join His mission? Well, good morning, Northland. It is good to be with you. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them open or on to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy 17. We'll be in a lot of different places today, but that will be a major launching pad. Now, let me say just some introductory points about this this series so far. I know this series is a little intense because I'm intense, uh, but but it, it really is a series built upon this idea of what God is doing from beginning to the end of scripture. And I hope that you have seen that I'm extremely passionate about the Lord and his mission. And then it's intense because there's a lot of Bible. I mean, I'm taking you through. It is like drinking from a fire hose. I I understand. Like today we're going to, even though I have you turn to Deuteronomy 17, I'm going to reach all the way back to Genesis. Then I'm going to take you all the way back to the gospels. And so I, I understand. But here's what I want you to hear in all of this. This church will be founded upon and saturated in the scriptures. Like, and another thing that I would say is come early 2023. Everybody say 2023. It will be here before we know it. But early in 2023, we will have a vision casting series, and I will be using a lot of language that we're learning right now. You say, so what are we doing right now? We are laying the theological foundation and framework for the kind of church and people we will be. Let me just say it this way. Practice flows from theology. Theology does not flow from practice. All right? So that's the reason why I'm taking so much time and I'm intense and taking us through the scriptures because I want us to know this is who God is. This is what he's been doing. And this is how we participate in what he's doing. Also, it's intense because God is calling his people to a higher standard. I want to say that again. God is calling his people to a higher standard. So that's why it's intense. I had somebody's like, well, you know, it just really flew over my head last week because, you know, it just really, I'm like, yeah, holiness probably will fly over your head if you're not holy. <laughs> Sorry. And then, <laughs> um, and then also, I want you to know this, church. We not only exist for the glory of God, we exist for the good of the world. And so we want to engage and we want to invite people far from Jesus to to explore who he is, 
what he's all about, his story, his mission, his grace, his love, and what it means to be part of his people. So we want to be a safe place where that happens. So yes, there is a tension. We're holy, but we exist for the good of the world, inviting people into who God is and what he's doing. So those are just introductory comments. has nothing to do with the message today, but wanted to give them to you. I got two trivia questions today that I'm coming with. I know I, I forgot to do that last week. So sorry, you know, about this trivia. But here's the two questions. Number one, I'm going to put a list of college football teams on the screen behind me. Do you know, (laughs) no, I'm not going there. Uh, Do you know what these college football teams had in common this year? So Akron, Florida, Notre Dame, USC, Miami, Texas Tech, LSU, Georgia Southern, Oklahoma, and Oregon. What do they have in common? Coaches. Yes, yes. They, they all have first-year coaches with their program, so we definitely want to pray for the coach of uh, Notre Dame. Uh, pray for his job. And, and then we definitely want to pray for the Florida head coach when they lost to Kentucky. I did wear a UK shirt last night, by the way. I, and I was just doing it to be fun and, and to poke fun at my Florida family. I, I just didn't know that Florida would lose. So, uh, but anyways, second question. What do all of these states have in common? Now, there's too many states to kind of put on the screen behind me, so listen up. So what do all of these states have in common? Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Florida, Georgia, Hawaii, Idaho, Illinois, Iowa, Kansas, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, Minnesota, Nebraska, Nevada, New Hampshire, New Mexico, New York, Ohio, Oklahoma, Oregon, Pennsylvania. Rhode Island, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Vermont, Wisconsin, and Wyoming. What do all of those states have in common? Governors. Yes. So we have a gubernatorial election coming up this fall where all of those states will elect their governor. You say, Josh, what do these questions have to do with where we're going? Well, the reason why these two questions are important is because they are choosing a leader to either lead their college football team or to lead their state. You do realize that in every realm of life, we look for leaders to lead us. And I think we would all agree that we need good leaders, good leaders, not just leaders who breathe. We need good leaders to lead our families, our communities, our businesses, our organizations, our cities, our states, and our nation, right? We need good leaders. Well, Joshua, what's a good leader? Well, here, let me just give you some characteristics, I think. We need leaders who are good role models, who set a good example of what it means to be human, authentic, down-to-earth, relatable, balanced, and centered, so they're healthy, selfless, caring, humble, so they think of themselves less, meek, which is strength under control, they're confident but collaborative, they're self-aware, they can manage the diversity of others, they're inspiring, they're encouraging, they're empowering, they are developing of others, and they are trustworthy. So that's a list of just good characteristics of good leaders. But I think that most of us would agree this morning that it is really difficult to find this kind of leader in our culture today. 
It does seem that there is a leadership vacuum and deficiency in today's culture. So the topic of leadership is not just important for our culture, but as we will see this morning in scripture, leadership is extremely important for God's mission. Because in the grand narrative, God is doing something. He's looking for someone to lead what he's doing, which leads me to the main point this morning. Are you ready for it? If you're not, I'm bringing it anyways. Here it is. God's people need a king to keep them on mission. God's people need a king to keep them on mission. And yes, I am intentionally using the word king. You say, Joshua, we live in a constitutional republic and, or, or a democracy. And uh, so uh, I, I don't really, uh, listen, I want us to know this. Yes, this is kind of a deficiency of being an American because we don't really understand what it's like to live in a kingdom where everything revolves around a king. But I want you to know that if you are a child of God, if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, all of those words are sin. If you are that, then you are part of a kingdom where everything revolves around a king. All right. And we'll see that here in a second. All right. And over the last three weeks, let me just kind of give us a refresher. Over the last three weeks, we have seen three different iterations of God's mission. Iteration number one, God is on mission to create a people to reflect his glory in all spheres of life. We saw that in Genesis chapter one, the very first chapter of our Bible list out God's mission. And so he's there to create a people to reflect his glory. Well, Adam and Eve, they sinned. They disobeyed God. And then in Genesis 3, we see the second iteration of God's mission, that God is on mission to redeem a people to reflect his glory in all spheres of life. So he's got to purchase something back. And what he has to purchase back for, from, for us is life. See, we, we sinned, we disobeyed, brought about death, brought about a shattering, a, a fracturing of the image of God. So he's got to redeem us. He's got to purchase our sin debt so that he can bring us back, so he can erect reconcile us again to himself. And then as we fast forward in the Genesis narrative, you get to Genesis 10, you see uh, the table of nations. So you're like, where did these nations come from? Well, Genesis 11 tells you where those nations came from. You had one people on planet earth. They gathered together in the city and they're like, hey, let's build a city, not for God's glory, but for our glory. And let's just see how great we are. And then God, he comes down and he judges them. He confuses their language and then you have these people now scattered throughout the earth and so now you have the formation of tribes nation tongues and people groups and then in Genesis 12 God's going to call a man by the name of Abraham and he's going to say through you Abraham I'm going to make a great nation and through you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed which leads to the third iteration of God's mission God is on mission to redeem a people from all peoples to reflect his glory in all spheres of life. Therefore, God is creating a new humanity, a new human race comprised of every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people group to reflect his glory, his characteristics, his attributes, his nature, his kingdom. He's creating a people to reflect his kingdom in all spheres of life. Now, what's fascinating? Here's what's fascinating. 
When you go all the way back to Genesis and you study God's communication and promises to Abraham, you'll find in, in the chapter in Genesis 17 where, where God changes Abram's name from Abram to Abraham. Abraham simply means father. Abraham means father of many. So, he, so on one hand, he's daddy, but now he's going to be big daddy. You remember that? So, so Abraham, so in the chapter where God changes Abraham's name, here are some promises God makes to Abraham. In Genesis 17, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. Now, this is interesting now, nations, why, why the plural use of nations? Well, let me tell you on a side note. So Abraham and Osarah, they're, they're up in age. They're past childbearing stage. And so Sarah comes to Abraham one day and says, you know, come, now, Abraham, I'm not getting any younger and neither are you. And God's made this promise that we are to have this child. And so let, let's just do this. I have a servant named Hagar. Let's use her and she can come into you and we can bear a son through her. Now, that was customary in the day. And so Abraham and Sarah, they jump the gun. Hagar goes in uh, to, to Abraham's tent. And then later on, she conceives. Anybody know the child's name that, that Hagar conceives? What's his name? Ishmael. Do you know who sees Ishmael as part of their line? Muslims. See, Jews and Christians would see Isaac as part of their line that connects us to Abraham. Muslims would see Ishmael as their connection to Abraham. And so Ishmael will have a line of nations and kings that come from him, but so will Isaac and eventually Israel. And so kings will come from the line of Abraham. But but not only does God tell Abraham that, that kings will come from his line, but also Moses speaks of kings in the plan of God for his people. So Deuteronomy 17, where I had you turn. Let me just read verses 14 through 20. Here's what Moses pins. He says, when you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it. And you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way Again, verse 17, he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priest. It is to be with him at all times and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he might learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all 
the words of this law and the decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left, then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. So therein lies the job description for the future king and kings of Israel. So therefore... According to Moses, the king of Israel needs to be chosen and anointed by God, needs to come from Israel, needs to exercise faith, needs to be frugal, not extravagant, needs to be loyal and not have his heart divided around many women, needs to know the scriptures and obey the scriptures, and needs to operate under the rule and lordship of God. Now, once again, in Deuteronomy 17, this is applying to Israel in the promised land, just as Exodus 19, as we saw last week, applied to Israel in the promised land. So as you fast forward and you get to the book of Joshua, now we have the conquest. So Israel, they're to go into the promised land, they're to wipe out all of the inhabitants of the land. Bible trivia, did they wipe out all of the inhabitants of the promised land? No. Many, many of the inhabitants were left. One of the people groups that were left were the Philistines, which we'll get at here in a few moments. Well, so after Joshua, you have the book of Judges. Now, what would happen, now here's what the Lord said, if you don't drive out all of the inhabitants, that they will be a snare to you. They're, 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 they're basically going to annoy you. They're gonna come after you all of the days that you are in the land. And that's exactly what would happen, is that these inhabitants that were left, they would attack Israel. And what you see in the book of Judges is that God would call and raise up judges to deliver God's people from the hand of their enemies. So judges like Gideon and Deborah and Samson, they were raised up to, to lead Israel and to free them from inhabitants that would attack them. At the end of the book of Judges, here's this dark statement that we read. In those days, Israel had what? No king, no king and everyone did what? So God is telling you right there, he's priming the pump. They need a king to keep them on mission. I've called them to be a treasured possession. I've called them to be a kingdom of priests. I've called them to be a holy nation. And they have no king that keeps them on mission. And so therefore, they do whatever they see fit. Well, you fast forward to 1 Samuel, where early in the book we are introduced to Samuel, a, a prophet, a priest, and a judge of Israel. He's well known. He's well liked. He's well revered. But during the latter part of Samuel's tenure, Israel comes to him and says, Samuel, we really love you. We revere you. But you old, you old. And your sons do not follow your way. So basically, not only are you old, Samuel, but now you did some pretty poor parenting as, as well. And so here's what we want, Samuel. We've been talking, and here's what we want. Give us a king to lead us so that we can be like all the other nations. So they don't ask for a king to lead them to be the people of God that God has called them to be. They ask for a king so that they can be like all 
the other nations. Well, Samuel, he is not happy at all. So he, he goes into his prayer closet and he's there talking to the Lord. And he's like, Lord, how can they? They've rejected my leadership. And the Lord's like, they ain't rejected you. They've rejected me as king over them. And so in this dialogue that Samuel has with the Lord, the Lord says, hey, listen, the king is basically in my plan. Give them what they are asking for. And so he's going to give them what they're asking for, which is a king. Bible trivia question again. Uh, Who was the first king of Israel? Saul. Now, Saul, he looked the part of a king. He was tall. He was muscular. He was handsome. He was intimidating. I want you to think of Dwayne the Rock Johnson. That was the first king of Israel. And so he started out promising, Saul did, but he actually flopped. And here's why he flopped. He got too big for his britches, and that is a southern slang for he got very prideful. Instead of waiting on Samuel one day to do the offering, so instead of waiting on the prophet, the preacher of Israel, he took it upon himself to do what Samuel was called to do. Therefore, he got outside of his lane and did something against the Lord's command. As a result, here's what God tells Samuel to tell Saul, and it was found in 1 Samuel 13. You have not kept the command of the Lord. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now the Lord has sought out another king. And everybody read what's underlined. A man after. So when Dali Saul was not a man after God's own heart, everybody looked to the outward appearance. Like he looked the part of a king. But now... Because of his, his wicked heart, now God is going to rip the kingdom from his hands and give it to another, and this king will be a man after God's own heart. Now, the question then would lie, what does a man after God's own heart mean? Well, in order to understand that, you need to look at that in the scope of who God is and what he's doing in the world. So therefore, when you, when you put into the, the, the frame of who God is and what he's doing in the world, in his mission, then here's what it means to be a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart is one who carries out the purposes of God. So someone who is after God's own heart carries out the purposes of God. So therefore, what God is looking for, he is looking for a leader. He is looking for a king for his people that might lead his people to carry out God's purposes in the world. That's what he's looking for. Now, this person, this king, will be no other than King David. Now, if you know anything about King David, which I think many of you do, even if you're not in church, you know at least the the story of probably David and Goliath because our culture tends to use that phraseology a lot. But, But David was imperfect and flawed. But what I want to show you over the next few moments is how he understood and how he carried out the purposes of God that allowed him to be the leader of God, the king of God that helped 
Israel stay on mission. So there are at least seven purposes of God that David carried out that would help keep God's people on mission. And so I'm going to go through these seven briefly. All right. Number one, everybody ready? We will go fast. Tell your neighbor, he go, but he's about to go fast. All right. Here it is. Number one, he loved the Lord with all of his heart, soul, and mind. He loved the Lord with all of his heart, soul, and mind. Many people do realize that, that David wrote many of the Psalms in the book of Psalm. In fact, he wrote at least 73 songs in the book of Psalm. Now, David writes on a range of topics and includes a range of emotions. But you also will see that David is not all sunshine and rainbows. However, David writes from the heart. And it is clear from many of his songs that he loved the Lord. Psalm 18, I love you, Lord, you're my strength. Psalm 116, I love the Lord for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, Lord. His most famous song, Psalm 23, exclaims, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He, he, he guides me along the right path for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for my God is with me, his rod, his staff, they comfort me. So we have a man in David that's carrying out this purpose of God, of loving the Lord, his God, with all of his heart, soul, and mind. And that is what God wanted from his people. We read that in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that God exclaims to Israel, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. Well, David is a king that does just that. The second purpose is this is that he embodied the Lord's characteristics. He embodied the Lord's characteristics. He exemplified and enacted the Lord's will. Now, we see this in a couple of different ways, but, but in, in two particular. So Saul, he's the first king of Israel, but God is going to strip the kingdom from his hand and he's going to give it to David. But what's fascinating is, although David's anointed king, he's not, he's not coming to the throne yet. Saul has to finish out his reign. So as you could imagine, Saul gets very jealous of David. So jealous that he wants to kill David. So on a couple of different occasions, he comes after David. But yet, in all of those occasions, God gives Saul into the hand of David. But David will not strike the Lord's anointed. He says this in 1 Samuel 26. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? So he's showing mercy. He's showing grace. He's showing compassion towards Saul. Well, eventually Saul dies and then his son Jonathan dies and then David, he comes onto the throne and then there's this civil war between Saul's relatives and David. Eventually the civil war ends and David, he reigns supreme there in Israel. Well, one day David, he sends out a message and he says, is there anybody left of the house of Saul because I want to bless them? They say, well, actually there is one left 
of Saul's household, and it's Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, he was disabled son of Jonathan. David reaches out to him, invites him into the palace, gives him a seat at the king's table, and he actually restores to Mephibosheth all of the land that belonged to Saul. Well, what are you, why, why are you saying that, Josh? Well, here's David embodying the characteristics, the generosity, the kindness, the compassion, the grace, the mercy of God. We read in Psalm 78, and David shepherded Israel with integrity of heart, with skillful hands, he led them. So he is, he is leading them to be a, a holy nation, a distinct and separate nation. Why? Because he is a holy king, distinct and separate. Well, the third and fourth purposes I put together uh, David, he fought the Lord's enemies and liberated the Lord's people. You do realize that one of the major responsibilities of kings was to fight for and protect their people from attacks. Well, it's interesting about David. All right, so David, he is the runt of the litter. He is the last born. He's the baby. All right. So what's so fascinating about David's rise to the throne is God comes to Samuel and says, I want you to go to the house of Jesse because that's where the next king of Israel will come from. So Samuel hightails it over to Jesse's house and he's like, Jesse, I got great news for you. One of your sons will be the next king over Israel. So I need you to go and get your sons. And so Jesse's like, all right, let me bring you my prize son right now. His name is Eliab. He's tall. He's handsome. He's muscular. He's got straight A's. He's the, he's the captain of the football team. I mean, Eliab, he's the man. And so Eliab, he's brought before Samuel. The Lord says to Samuel, nope, this one isn't it. Because you are looking on the outward appearances, but God is looking for the heart. So I am not calling Eliab to be the next king. And so Samuel tells Jesse, you got another son? He's like, yeah, I got another son. He runs, gets another son, brings him, and he's like, nope, that's not one either. Where's the other one? He go, goes and gets the third, then the fourth, then the fifth, then the sixth. And he's like, are these all of your sons, Jesse? And Jesse's scratching his head, and he's like, I, I think so. No, no, I got one other. He's out in the pasture. He's the youngest. And so Samuel's like, he's honored because he's older. And he's like, go get him. I'm wasting my time. I mean, good. And so, so he goes and gets David, brings him back. And there, David is anointed as king. Josh, why are you saying all this? Because when you look at David, you don't see a warrior. He, he's the runt of the litter. He might be cute, he might be handsome, but he's not muscular, he's not tall, he's not strong. I mean, he, he is the least of all of his brothers. But what is interesting is that although he is the, the last born, the baby, he's going to be known for his warrior skills. In fact, he's put on the map because of his victory over Goliath. And then a song was in circulation after that victory. And here's what the song said. Saul has slain his thousands, but David, he's slain his tens of thousands. So here you, on one hand, you got King Saul looked the part of a warrior king, but he couldn't do what God had called him to do. But here's David, the one who doesn't look the part, poor little shepherd boy taking care of sheep. And he comes on the scene and he's slaying thousands. He is the warrior king. In fact, 
It's going to be through David that God gives the land rest, gives Israel rest from their enemies. And you see that in 2 Samuel 7. And what this does, and don't miss this church, I'm trying to connect these dots right here. This actually harkens back to the promise that God made to Adam and Eve, that I would crush the head of Satan. I would crush the head of the serpent. And then he makes this promise to Abraham. Those who bless you, Abraham, I'll bless those who curse you, Abraham, I will do what? I'll curse. And so here it is. You got David carrying out these purposes of God, of fighting God's enemies and liberating God's people. The fifth purpose is this, is he listened to the Lord. He listened to the Lord. On numerous occasions, you will see David go in and spend time with the Lord and say, say, Lord, should I do this? Should I do this? Should I do this? And the Lord is speaking to him and he follows what the Lord tells him. Now, I know what some people are thinking because I had the thought too. You hear this point that he carried out God's purposes and listening to him. And you might think, well, aren't there a couple instances where David didn't listen to the Lord? And you would be exactly right. But here's what I would draw your attention to. After his moral failing, after his adultery with Bathsheba, Nathan, the prophet, the preacher, comes to David and rebukes him. So it's a year later, Nathan comes, rebukes David, corrects David, and here are the words that David utters. I have sinned against the Lord. And then David, after this this godly sorrow, this, this remorse, he would take pen to paper and he would write the following song. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then he says, you do not delight in sacrifices or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings or I would offer it. No, God, what you are requiring, your sacrifices are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Well, what we're seeing there with David is that he has this moldable, teachable, correctable heart that really does want to listen to the Lord even when he has failed. And we certainly see that kind of person demonstrated in Israel's most prominent leaders up until this point. Abraham listened to God. Moses listened to God. Joshua listened to God. The sixth purpose is this. David desired to build for the Lord a God-glorifying city and nation. He desired to build for the Lord a God-glorifying city and nation. Here's, Here's some Bible trivia. What was the first capital of Israel? Anybody know? Nope. Starts with an H. Hebron. And then David is going to move the capital of of Israel from Hebron to Jerusalem. Now, why in the world would David move the capital from Hebron to Jerusalem? Well, there was some practical reasons. It was more strategic. It was actually neutral. It didn't belong to any of the 12 tribes of Israel. It was also built upon a natural fortress, and it was really the center of Israel. But there were some theological reasons why he's going to move the city. Jerusalem means city of shalom or city of peace. So so it's supposed to be the city of of wholeness, well-being, completeness, harmony, beauty, righteousness, and justice where it reigned. 
Now, but here's, here's something fascinating about Jerusalem. In Genesis 14, Abraham, remember God called him to go to the promised land. As Abraham now is in the land of Canaan, he comes across a guy called Melchizedek. Everybody say Melchizedek. That is just a fun name to say Melchizedek. And so Melchizedek, he was king of Salem, which is Shalom. So he's actually king of Jerusalem, and he's also the priest of the Most High God. And what it seems like in Psalm 110, David is tying the messianic, the ultimate chosen Messiah of the Lord and king to actually rule in Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem. And here's why the, the, the leader that God has, the anointed one, will lead in Zion to be an eternal priest in the order of Melchizedek. So what David in his mind is thinking, I need need to move the capital to Jerusalem because that's the city that God is building for his glory. It's a city of shalom. It's a city of peace and wholeness and well-being and tranquility. It's a city where he rules, where righteousness rules and justice reigns. Listen to Psalm 122. David, he actually writes a song of ascent. So as people would come up to Jerusalem, this is the song they are to sing. I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. This is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord. There they stand, there stand the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Well, the peace, the shalom, the well-being, the wholeness of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, may those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls, security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say peace be within you. David wanted Jerusalem to be a city that was built for God's glory. And then the last purpose that David carries out is he sought to make the Lord known among the nation and nations. He sought to make the Lord known among the nation and nations. Everybody knows the story of David and Goliath. Let me tell you ultimately why that story is there. So when David, he finally gets to the valley, and I don't have time to set it up. One of these days I'll preach on it because it's just a fun passage to preach. But David gets down to the valley where Goliath is, and Goliath starts taunting David. And I can't tell you what Goliath said because it just wouldn't be right for me to say those words in here. But that's what Goliath does, taunting David. But David, he taunts back, and here's what David says in 1 Samuel 17. He says to Goliath, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord God Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. You have defamed the name of God. You have defied God's people. This day, the Lord, this is David. This is young little whippersnapper, teenage David. This day, the Lord will deliver you. Yeah, you Goliath. Yeah, you big galoot. Yeah, I don't, I don't care how big you are. Don't, how, I don't care how tall you are. This very day, I... I will have the victory because God will give me victory over you. And I'm going to take your carcass. I'm going to take your carcass there, Goliath. I'm going to cut your head off. And then I'm going to feed your carcass to the birds and the wild animals. 
That's David talking to Goliath. And here's the reason why. This is in scripture. Do not miss this. Verse 46. This is the reason why. So the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. The only reason why David fought Goliath that day in one wasn't to show how strong David was, wasn't to show how creative David was in taking his little slingshot and slinging and slaying the giant. It was because he wanted to make God known. That's why. And then David would write multiple songs that express the sentiment of making God known. Psalm 22, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. Psalm 86, among the gods there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. David wanted to proclaim and to declare God's glory among the nations, that the nations might stream in to Jerusalem and give God glory. Given that David was a man after God's own heart, you could see in 2 Samuel 7 where God enters into an eternal covenant with David and says, because of who you are, because you are a man after my own heart, there will never cease a moment where someone will not be sitting on the throne of David. And there is going to come a time, David, when someone will come from your line and I will establish his rule and reign forever and ever and ever. Why? Because David, you are a man after my own heart. Now, if you know the story of Israel, you will fast forward and you will see how Israel suffered to find a king, a man after God's own heart, to lead God's people in doing what God had called them to do. And you will read more kings than not that says they did evil in the sight of the Lord and the people were led astray. And so there's this tension that is created in the Old Testament where Israel is looking for the Messiah. They're looking for the anointed one. They're looking for a leader and a king to redeem them, to renew them, to restore them. That's the reason why the prophet Isaiah would write in Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And some of you, you're hearing that passage, you're like, well, that's a Christmas passage. Well, it sure is, because we use uh, that passage to tie uh, Jesus to the Old Testament. So you keep fast forwarding and you get to the gospels and particularly Matthew. Here's what, here's how Matthew begins his gospel. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. And then Luke is very clear in his gospel account to link the birth of Jesus to David. So when the angel comes to Mary, here's what the angel says. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call his name Jesus which means Yahweh saves he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high God the Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever and of his kingdom there will be no end Josh why are you saying all this because I want to tie in the fact that Jesus is the better David he is the 
God man, the cosmic king who is directly from the heart of God, who will carry out the purposes of God and lead God's people on mission. That is the reason why Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one of God, who loves God with all of his heart, soul, and mind. Jesus came preaching and embodying the kingdom of God. He was kind, merciful, gracious, loving, compassionate, just, righteous, pure, and holy. And Jesus came and he defeated the ultimate Goliath. He defeated Satan. He crushed and cut the head of Satan through his death and his resurrection. As a result, Jesus, he is the better shepherd who defeats Satan, who came to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus, because he's the better shepherd, he provides abundant life. Jesus listens to the Lord, even in the garden when he is contemplating the cross. He says, not my will, but Lord, your be done. Jesus, he, after his death and his resurrection, he assembles his disciples and he says, I want you to go and make disciples of what? Of all Thai ethnic, all nations. And I want you to begin in Jerusalem. They go to Judea, Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the world because God is on mission to redeem a people from all peoples. And then Jesus, he's building a new humanity, a new city, a city on a hill, a city that is the light of the world. And in the same vein, he is building and constructing a new temple comprised of his people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every language. And his people is the new temple where the glory of God resides. Jesus is the better David. Jesus is God's king to lead and keep God's people on mission. Church, this is why we're Jesus-centered. This is what I mean by Jesus-centered, gospel-centered. We are a gospel-centered, Jesus-centered church. Why? He's our king. Everything we do revolves around him. Because God, since Genesis, has been saying, I'm going to give you a king. I'm going to give you a king. And everything we revolve around him. And Jesus happens to be the God-man king. Fully God, fully human, fully perfect, and fully capable of leading us to God and keeping us on mission. So here's the thing. You know how you know, how you know if you are Jesus-centered? Guess what? If you follow Jesus as king... You will, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Embody the characteristics of the Lord. You will overpower the Lord's enemy and experience freedom in Jesus. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Church, we are an offensive community. And the gates of hell cannot prevail against us because we are living in the power of Jesus. You will listen to the Lord. You will seek to make the Lord known among the nations. And you will be built up as God's holy people to reflect the glory of God. If Jesus is the center, those things will be true in your life. And as I end, let me just say it this way too. If Jesus is the center, those things will be evident in our life. Therefore... That's my job description and the governing elders' job description in leading Northland Church. Like, that's what it means. That's what it means. Church, I love you. 
and what God's doing in his people and through his people, it's not just 2,000 years old. It's since the beginning of time. And that's what I want you to see. God, he is on mission. And he has given us a king to keep us on mission. And this king is beautiful. If you don't know Jesus, he's a beautiful king. He's a righteous king. He's a just king. He's a gracious and merciful king. I mean, what other king came to die for their enemies and invite them into their kingdom? But Jesus does. And that's the king we serve. And that's the king that keeps us on mission. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being our king. Thank you for being our king. (laughs) I never grow old. Never grows old preaching about you, King Jesus. Father, I pray that we as a church, we would be centered and anchored around you. Spirit, fill us, empower us. Jesus, thank you for giving us the spirit to keep us on mission, to keep us on task. I pray for those who are far from you, Jesus, will you draw them to your beauty and your grace and your kingship that they might order their life, reorient their life, reimagine their life around you, around you, for your beauty is amazing. Your kingship is everlasting, and we love you.